The subject to be discussed in the remainder of this first chapter, I want to come to that tonight, is what I would call the declaration or the declaring of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul here is concentrating his remarks upon his own ministry in the Gospel of Christ. You'll notice that he describes himself here in verse number 25 as a minister who has a dispensation or a stewardship, is really the word, that he might be a preacher of Christ. And as such, in the ministry, Paul is to be an example for all believers. Whenever he wrote to Timothy, this is what he said to the younger preacher, as an older preacher, Be thou an example of the believers. And so, Paul himself was an example to the Colossians and indeed to all believers. Now I want us to notice certain things that Paul sets forth in this portion. In the first place, he talks about his employment. Let's think about the employment of Paul and his service. Look at verse 23 in the second part of the verse. He talks about the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. Then you have this other reference in verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister. A minister. And that's not the only place in the New Testament where he speaks in this way. If you go back just a few pages to Ephesians, to chapter 3, And to verse number 8, he says this, Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, he didn't have a very high opinion of himself, obviously, I'm less than the least, is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And again, if we turn to his words to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, From verse 11 to verse 13, he says this, According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust. And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was a true minister of the gospel in this sense. Someone described it in this way. A minister of the gospel is one who knows the gospel, has been saved by the Christ of the gospel, and with joy of heart proclaims the gospel to others. I think that's a really good definition. He's one who knows the gospel. He himself has been saved by the Christ of the gospel. And he has joy in his heart, proclaiming that gospel to other people. And that's Paul. Now notice the word that he uses here. In the English it's translated minister. But that same word in the Greek is sometimes translated in the New Testament as deacon or servant. That's what a deacon is. A servant. The word minister, the word servant is sometimes interchangeable. And so we think about the employment of Paul and his service for Christ. He served the cause of the gospel 
He was not simply doing a job. The ministry is not a regular job. I've had people say to me, well, it must be wonderful just to work one day a week. If you believe that, you don't know the truth. But that's what some people think. Oh, that's your job. That's your employment. I'm a plumber. I'm a carpenter. You're a minister. It's a job. Well, no, it's not just a job. And it certainly was not just a job to the Apostle Paul. He wasn't merely employed as a preacher. He was a dedicated servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And would to God that all men who call themselves ministers were the same way. Serving out of love to their master and because of their master's love toward them. That's why Paul was in the ministry. Because he was constrained so to be. In a sense he was compelled. He was forced to preach. You say, well, nobody put a gun to his head, did they? Nobody actually said, now Paul, you have to preach. No, but I don't mean that. I mean that he was compelled by something else. And he speaks about it in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. Let me read that to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 14. For the love of Christ, and we must understand that that's Christ's love for him. He's not talking about his love for Christ. He's talking about Christ's love for him. For the love of Christ constraineth us. That word constraineth is translated elsewhere in the New Testament, as I've pointed out before, as the same word, constraining. But it has to do with the disciples being pushed into a boat by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, you fellows get into this boat. He made them get in. He compelled them to get into that ship to go to the other side. This is how Paul felt about the ministry. He was compelled to do this. He couldn't do anything else. Because the Lord had called him. And he was serving out of love to his master and because of his master's love to him. Paul was a servant. Now you and I who profess the name of Christ in the ministry or not, we're called to be servants. We are saved to serve. It has been said that if the Lord only saved you to take you to heaven, then He would have taken you to heaven the moment you were saved. But He hasn't. He's left you here to serve Him. For however long or short a time you have on this earth, we're here to serve Him. And as a preacher called Stuart Briscoe said, you cannot be reconciled to God without being recruited for God. You're in His service. You are saved to serve. And Romans 6, 17 and 18 speaks to that. But not only was Paul a servant, he was a steward. Look with me at Colossians 1 and verse 25. Whereof I made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given to me for you. Now some people have wrongly thought that this was referring to a particular period of time in which Paul ministered. That's not what that means. The word dispensation here has to do with stewardship. He was a divinely appointed steward. Now what was a steward? A steward was a man who would work for someone in his house looking after all of his goods taking inventory of his stuff and making sure that it was kept safe. 
There was a time when Joseph worked as a steward for Potiphar in his house. Now, a steward, as far as the spiritual aspect of concern, is concerned, is one who is an administrator of spiritual treasure. There's something committed to his care. And that which is committed to his care is spiritual treasure. It's the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul talks about this stewardship here. 1 Corinthians 4 and the first two verses. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ, there it is again, and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. This is also something that's referred to in the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 17. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. A stewardship of the gospel is committed to my care. Something is entrusted to the charge or the care of the steward. Paul here is speaking of the gospel. It is committed into his care. God has given us a message that, he might, that we might preach that message. That we might proclaim that message to others. And I want you to just notice briefly the marginal rendering of verse 25. At the end of that verse, to fulfill the word of God. Or fully to preach the word. That's what it means. Fully to preach the word. Not to hold anything back. God has entrusted us with a spiritual treasure, the gospel, that we might give it forth to others. Not dig a hole in the ground and hide it. But actually spread it. And tell others about it. So believer in Christ tonight, you are to be a servant and you are to be a steward of spiritual things. This is the employment of Paul, his service. But he goes on to speak of his endurance. Look at the endurance of Paul and his suffering. In verse 24, he refers to this. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. What's he talking about? When Paul is referring to his, his sufferings, there's a whole lot of things that he could be referring to, but it would certainly include the imprisonment that he now was undergoing. He's in prison right now. He's a jailbird. And he's not there for anything that he's done that's really wrong, but he's been persecuted for the gospel's sake. And so he's writing to the Colossians while he's in prison. And if you want to know the things that Paul had to put up with in the ministry, negatives, afflictions, hardships, sufferings, then you could do no better than read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to this list of things that he had to undergo. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 23. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes 
above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. They would use a cat and nine tails to whip a person. He was condemned to forty lashes. But the Jews were so scrupulous about keeping the law, they were afraid they would miscount, so they would always count thirty-nine. And that's why Paul said five times, I had received forty stripes save one. Forty stripes except one. That means if the executioner gave an extra one, it wouldn't matter because it would just be forty rather than thirty-nine. But that happened five times. Now, math's not my strong point, but I make that 295 stripes. Think of that. 295 lashes with a cat and nine tails. That was no picnic when the, when the Romans conducted that kind of punishment. And then he says this, verse 25. Thrice, that's three times, was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. In fact, you read about that in the book of Acts. He was stoned They thought he was dead, and they left him for dead. He was so badly injured. Then he says, Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. Floating about in the ocean on a piece of wood or something like that. In journeyings often, perils of waters and perils of robbers and perils by mine own countrymen and perils by the heathen and perils in the city and perils in the wilderness and perils in the sea and perils among false brethren, people who pretended to be Christians, pretended to be colleagues of his who were not. And then he said, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside those things that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Is that all, Paul? Is that all that you had to endure? My sufferings, so much is included in that. But note his attitude to that suffering. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Colossians 1.24 He was happy to suffer for the Lord's sake and for the sake of his people. Just like those that are spoken of in Acts chapter 5. Remember those people? Those apostles and others? Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41. It says, when they called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They counted it a badge of honor. They counted it a great privilege to suffer for Jesus. Now, in Colossae, we should understand, in that city, there were certain people inferring that Paul, being in prison, was bringing shame on the gospel. Think of it. Our minister was brought to court and thrown in jail. What a disgrace to our church. He's a jailbird. And yet Paul rejoiced in his afflictions for the gospel. He counted it a privilege to suffer in bonds for the cause of Christ. Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 8. He said, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner. 
but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. He went on to say in verse 16, The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. He wasn't ashamed to be associated with a man of God who was in prison. Now why did Paul have this attitude to his sufferings? Why did he rejoice in his afflictions? Because they were for Christ's sake. Because of his association with the Lord Jesus. See friends, there's so many different reasons why we could suffer. Sometimes we could suffer affliction because of our own stupidity. There are things that can happen to us because of our own foolishness. And it's entirely our own fault. And in a sense you could say we deserve all we get. But not when you suffer as a Christian. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4 and verses 15 and 16. It deals with this. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a busybody in other men's matters. You know, if you murder somebody, you deserve all you get. Right? Punishment. If you're a thief, same thing. But then he says this, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And that's what Paul did. He rejoiced in his afflictions. Normally you wouldn't be happy being in prison. Say it's a terrible thing to get thrown in jail. Especially in those days. You know, today it's like staying in a five-star motel in some cases when they go into jail. But not then. And yet he counted it a great privilege. And our Lord Jesus Christ said that we should have that attitude when we're afflicted for the gospel's sake. In Matthew chapter 5 you have what's called the Beatitudes. They all begin with the word blessed. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness sake is one of those. From verse 10 of Matthew 5. Blessed are they which are persecuted, not for foolishness sake, but for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. So when they laugh at you for being a Christian... For not doing the things that they do. You're to count that as a privilege. I'm suffering on behalf of Christ. So I should rejoice. We're talking about the endurance of Paul and his suffering. Note the attitude to his sufferings. I rejoice. But then notice the appointment of his suffering. See this is a really important point. Sometimes we can wonder why bad stuff happens to us. But Paul knew that this suffering that he was undergoing was his destiny as the Lord's apostle to the Gentiles. He was told this right up front when he first got saved. Back there in Acts chapter 9, when he first was converted, there was a man called Ananias who met him. And Ananias at first didn't trust Saul of Tarsus as he was then. He said, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he's done to thy saints at Jerusalem. Lord, this man is a bad person. 
And you'll notice too, he went on to say, Acts 9.14, And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. He's educating the Lord. Don't you know this, Lord? This man is a bad person. He's come here to persecute Christians and to put them into jail. Don't you know this, Lord? But the Lord said unto him, Acts 9.15, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And notice this, For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul wasn't going into this with his eyes shut. He knew fine well that as he served the Lord Jesus Christ, he was going to suffer for that. He knew that it was appointed. That this was part of God's plan for him. Again, 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 3. He says that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. We are appointed thereunto. This is part of God's plan. Why would I fight against that? Because this is what the Lord has ordained. You'll notice what he says in Colossians 1 and verse 24, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. Now what does that mean? Fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ. It really means this. Fulfill what yet remains of the appointed tale of afflictions that I must suffer for Christ's sake. Paul is not saying here that the sufferings of the Lord Jesus for sin were not enough. He's not saying that Christ's suffering was incomplete or that it was deficient. Let's not understand it that way. No, that's not what he's saying. Because Jesus himself said, it is finished. So when he says, I'm filling up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ, it doesn't mean that Christ has not finished his work. It does mean that the enemies of Christ have not yet finished their work. And so we as believers are going to endure suffering for the Lord. See, the Lord Jesus is not suffering for sin now. He's not suffering the opposition of men now because he's in heaven. He's no longer here in the flesh to endure that. But the arrows of the enemy that are aimed at Jesus Christ strike his followers instead. See, we are here. The devil can't get at Christ, but he can get at the people of Christ. And that's what Paul is referring to here. We are so closely identified with our Lord Jesus Christ that any hatred of him is also a hatred of us. Oh, but I thought if you become a Christian, everybody would like you. No. Absolutely not. Think of what Jesus said about this. Just turn back to John chapter 15. We're speaking here about affliction, about suffering, particularly in relation to Paul, but what Paul was experiencing is the experience of all believers. John chapter 15, from verse 18, Jesus is speaking. Listen to this. 
If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you, For my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. Very clear, isn't it? Hatred of Christ is reflected in the hatred of the people of Christ. The devil attacks the head by going after the body. And that's something that was made very clear to Saul of Tarsus when he, before he became the Apostle Paul when his name was changed he was called Saul remember that time when he had the Damascus Road experience he fell off his beast and he rose a new man prior to that him getting saved it says in verse 3 of Acts 9 that as he journeyed he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven and he fell to the earth And heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now how was Saul persecuting Jesus? Jesus was in heaven at this time. He's speaking to him from heaven. So what does the Lord mean? Well, go back to verse 1. And Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way whether they were men or women he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem he's attacking the church he's attacking Christians he's putting them in jail he's bringing them into position where they could be killed and that's why the Lord said to him in verse 4 Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? and he said who art thou Lord? and the Lord said Look at this. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. You see that? Persecuting the church is tantamount to persecuting Jesus. Suffering is the appointed lot of every true disciple of Christ. And Paul refers to the advantage of his suffering as well in verse 24 of Colossians 1. I call it the advantage of his suffering because it was for the benefit of the church. Verse 24, he says, Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. That which I'm going through is for the benefit of of the work of God and that ties in with what it says in Philippians chapter 1 let me read Philippians chapter 1 from verse 12 but I would you should understand brethren that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel it's been to the advantage of God's cause so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places and many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
What Paul was suffering was an inspiration to others in the ministry. They thought, well, if Paul has to put up with that, we can surely put up with that. We'll follow his example. And the Lord would make sure that it all fell out to their good. So we need to realize this. There is an advantage in our sufferings. In that God has a great purpose in all of our persecutions and afflictions for his sake. All of it is for his glory and for our good. Now I know it's hard to see that. In fact, it's impossible to recognize that at times. How could this be to the benefit either of me or of the work of God? But it is, ultimately. And that brings me to the third thing. And that is in the gospel ministry, Paul had an emphasis. And the emphasis of Paul... His subject is referred to here. In verse 26 down to verse 28, the first part, he refers to the mystery. He mentions that word mystery in verse 26 and again in verse 27. Then he tells us what it is. Verse 27, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. What was Paul's great subject? It was Christ. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And this word mystery in Paul's writings refers to a person or even to a truth that would have remained unknown had not God revealed either him or it. A mystery, but then it was made known. It was revealed. And in this case, Paul means the mystery had not been historically realized until Christ came into the world, and especially when the gospel of Christ was spread out to include the Gentiles, including the Colossians. This was part of the mystery that had been hidden. But truly the mystery that Paul was called to preach was Christ himself. Didn't he say to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, and so on. The commentator William Hendrickson said, This mystery, it is Christ in all his glorious riches, actually dwelling through his Spirit in the hearts and lives of the Gentiles. Now we must understand, Paul's writing here to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentile Christians at Colossae. He was... The apostle to the Gentiles, particularly. And his great theme in preaching was Christ. Whom we preach, he said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Go back to chapter 1, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord was dwelling in them. They were referred to in chapter 1, verse 2, as saints and faithful brethren. That word saints is a Greek word, hagios, hagioi, the plural, which means holy ones. See, there's a teaching in the Roman Catholic Church that saints are people who are declared to be saints by the Pope. They do certain great things in their life and one of the things that qualifies them for sainthood is that they have to have been involved in doing some miracle or other. And then eventually they will have this beatification of this person 
And they'll declare that this person is now a saint. And people can start praying to them. Like so-called Mother Teresa of Calcutta. She's now a saint. John Paul II, who was the Pope some time ago, he's now a saint. So people can actually pray to him for favors on the earth. Now the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible knows nothing of praying to the saints. But rather, if you look at the New Testament, you will see, just as it is in Colossians and various other places, saints were people who were alive on the earth at that time. They weren't in heaven. They hadn't been declared saints by somebody somewhere. They were living, holy Christians upon the earth. What does it mean to be a saint? It means that you are saved by God's grace. You're now one of His holy ones because you've been put into a new position and you now enjoy a new standing before God that you never had before. What was your standing? Well, he tells the Ephesians what their standing was. Basically, they didn't have any standing. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. That at that time, you were without Christ. Or outside of Christ. Being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a terrible position to be in. Without Christ, without hope, and without God in the world. But look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You've been washed from your sins. You're brought close to God. You have a different standing now. You're one of His saints. And now not only can you say that you are in Christ, but Christ is in you as well. Just as He said to the Colossians in verse 27 of chapter 1, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, you're in Christ, but Christ is in you. He dwells in you. He's the vine. And you're the branches. You are his people. What a tremendous subject for Paul to expound upon. The emphasis of Paul, his subject. One final thing. And this brings us to verses 28 and 29. And it's the effort of Paul or his striving. The great effort that he put forth. Verse 28 and 29. Whom we preach. That's Christ. Whom we preach. It's not just what we preach, but he actually preaches about a person. Whom we preach. Warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. He's referring to hard work in the ministry. Paul labored. The word that he uses here, For striving is a word that refers to the effort put forth by an athlete into the work of getting ready for competition. You know, if you knew anything about what goes into becoming a professional athlete, first of all, the dedication that is involved. They have nutritionists, they have all manner of people looking after them so that they can be in optimum shape for being able to play or run or whatever it may be. 
Athletes are totally dedicated to their profession. They have to be. They have to give 100% in order to be at their optimum for that activity that they're involved in. That's what Paul is referring to here. Striving according to his working. He mentions the word labor in verse 29. That word is a word that refers to such hard work that it brings on great weariness. A lot of people today don't know anything about that. It's all about shirking. It's all about cutting corners with many people. Do as little work for as much pay with as much vacation as you can get, right? That's the attitude of many people. But Paul was a worker. And in verse 28 he's referring to this spiritual work. That's what it is, spiritual work. The preaching of Paul. What did that preaching involve? Well, Christ was the subject, verse 28, whom we preach. But then he says, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Warning. Or the word might be translated, admonishing. You know the message of Christ's gospel is a message of warning? It's a note of alarm. Way back in the days of the Puritans, there was a man called Joseph Allen who wrote a book. It's been given a really different title now, but I like the original title, which is An Alarm to the Unconverted. An Alarm to the Unconverted. You want people to waken up, so they have to be warned. And the message of Christ is a message of warning. Think of how Paul Uh, spoke about this to the elders at Ephesus. Acts 20, verse 31. Listen to this. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. He said, I warned people with the tears running down my cheeks. He was really in earnest. Of course, that is a reference to those that are lost. But we have to say even Christians are admonished or warned when the word is preached. The Lord gives us warnings. Again, I could refer to a scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 4. I remember it being preached at my ordination to the Christian ministry. I never forgot it. It has stayed with me since that night. Preach the word. I have it in front of me here inside my pulpit. In a beautifully done calligraphy that my sister did for me. Preach the word. She did that for me in memory of my father. When my dad was lying in hospital in Newark, Delaware. Looking like he would not survive that aneurysm that he had when he was being wheeled on a gurney into the OR. The doctor turned to me and said he couldn't really tell whether he would survive or not. I didn't feel very good when he said that. But I remember my dad just turning his head when he was on the gurney and he said, Son, preach the word. 
preach the word. That was going to be his final shot. If he didn't make it, he did make it. Lived for some years after that, thank the Lord. But that, we were not to know that. That's what he wanted to tell me. Preach the word. And he knew that was preached at my ordination on the 20th of November, 1985. From 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2 onwards. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They want these teachers to scratch their ears for them instead of telling them the truth. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things endure afflictions. There it is. Do the work of an evangelist. Make full proof of thy ministry. Preach the word. And when you preach the word, it not only involves instruction and teaching. Paul refers to that here. Teaching every man in all wisdom, but also warning every man. There is a warning. And this preaching is to the great end of what? Seeing lives and hearts changed. See that in verse 28 of Colossians 1. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that, it means in order that, we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This is the goal. This is the goal. The preaching is to the great end of seeing lives changed. And as God is my witness, that's all I care about. By the way, the word in the Greek for perfect here, it's translated perfect in English, it doesn't mean perfect as you and I think of it as without fault. It means complete or mature. That we may present every man as a mature person in Christ Jesus. Growing in the Lord. And that's where we all are supposed to be headed for maturity. There'd be something wrong if you had a little child that started out on the milk as a young baby. You go back and see that child when it's six or seven years of age and it's still just drinking milk and not eating anything. It'd be a problem, wouldn't it? Because it's not growing. It's not, it's not developing. It's not maturing. And the Bible talks about that in Hebrews chapter 5. Paul actually had to say this about some of them. Hebrews 5 from verse 12. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers... Ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. It's talking about maturity spiritually. Are we maturing in the faith? This is the end of the preaching of Paul. And then he refers to the power for this. The power in Paul. It's in verse 29, the last verse of Colossians 1. 
Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. See, Paul is making it clear that the glory goes to God. The Lord working mightily in him and through him. It's not about Paul. Even though he's putting a lot of effort into the ministry, Paul is working. But the great thing is that God is working in him. And see, the the power that's needed to make our witness and our preaching effective is not in us. It doesn't reside in us. Yes, we must work, but God must work on our behalf or nothing will really be done. And that's what we've got to do is to labor for the Lord, but in the knowledge that we must pray for God to work as we labor. The last thing that the Bible says in Mark's gospel about the Lord before he left this scene of time was this. It says about the disciples, Mark 16, 20, and they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following, Amen. The Lord working with them. Isn't that what we need? The Lord to work as we work. I could preach till the cows come home. You can witness till you're blue in the face. And unless the Holy Spirit himself works, it will all come to nothing. I believe that. Let me finish with the words of Psalm 90. Psalm 90 verse 16 and 17. It's a prayer to the Lord. Let thy work appear unto thy servants and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. And establish thou the work of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. So it's not that we're saying, well, we're not to do any work for the Lord. The Lord will do it all. No, we must work for the Lord. But remembering this, we need his work to appear unto his servants. We need the beauty of the Lord our God to be upon us. We need him to make the word effectual and effective. That it might bring about those changes in people. That, that Paul referred to here. Teaching every man in all wisdom. That we may present every man mature in Christ Jesus. May the Lord do that for us. For his own name's sake. And for his glory. Amen.